0: What is metta-vipassana? I think I can talk about that a little bit before we get into doing some metta practice. Um, So if we just kind of look at, um, well, if we go all the way back to the early Buddhist tradition, which is my general interest, um, pre-Theravada, even early Buddhism, uh, traditionally speaking, the Buddha does offer two paths of liberation. Um, One is called Panya Vimuti, which is liberation through the insight of wisdom. Uh, the other one is called Chitta Vimuti, which is uh, liberation through the cultivation of the heart. Um, many of you, I, I think, I've done a few talks for Sangha Live on Chitta. It's a it's a practice and a concept that I, I'm greatly interested in. So there's, there's the wisdom aspect of it, and then there's the liberation through the heart. Both are great and appropriate paths. Um, but uh, Chitta Vimuti has kind of been buried uh, in the last. 2,000 years. Um, and so wisdom has been sort of the, uh, the component that's sort of been like, well, wisdom's the real thing. And this other thing is kind of like uh, not as, not as uh, good or something. And this primarily comes from a, a monastic kind of perspective, which I am not a monastic. I don't suspect anybody on the screen is a monastic. Probably many of you have no interest in taking that path. So what does that mean for the rest of us? Well, we see this play out in the insight world, for those of us who've been sitting Vipassana retreats or insight retreats to insight. Uh, Martin's part of the insight world, I'm part of the insight world, Jack, Joseph, Sharon's a huge, huge thing, actually. Uh, we see this play out very well in that there's um, lots of emphasis on mindfulness, uh, cultivation of mindfulness, satipatthana, developing the four satipatthanas, the four mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness sort of an understanding and if we understand the true nature of things that we're going to be fully awake. Um, and we see that, you know, if you go on any Vipassana retreat, you usually do Vipassana or mindfulness practices pretty much the whole day. And maybe there'll be like one heart practice session. Sometimes they'll do a whole retreat on Metta. But if you look at the general Uh, schedule or calendars of insight centers uh, about 90% of their retreats are Vipassana mindfulness retreats um, and very little emphasis on on the development of the heart and I don't think this is bad or wrong this is sort of just how the tradition has played out so I'm a huge fan of integration um, and uh, integration uh, meaning uh, the linkage of differentiated parts so we have these differentiated parts of our experience, these different aspects of our experience, these different practices. We have these differentiated practices. We have metta, we have vipassana. What we want to do is we want to bring those all together so that our practice is holistic or wholesome. Or it's, it's full. It's fully complete. We're doing it all. Um, so metta vipassana is actually that practice. It's, it's the bringing of the Brahma-viharas, classically, as they're classically known, uh, loving-kindness, compassion, uh, gratitude, and equanimity, or or empathetic joy, however you want to talk about uh, Mudita, uh, into the foundations of mindfulness, into Vipassana. So that way we're we're doing both at the same time. And so if we look at uh, Buddhist Meditation 101, what happens in Buddhist meditation it's actually not that complicated is that we sit we take our posture we sit we we bring our awareness into the present time experience and then what happens is objects arise in our experience and with mindfulness and vipassana wisdom we want to understand the object that arises so the breath arises and passes away the out breath arises and passes away sensations arise and pass away thoughts arise and pass away plans and memories and uh, emotions and all of these things arising and passing away, and we wanna be able to recognize as clearly as we can what the object is uh, with no preference, which is really hard. Uh, sometimes we like the object, we don't like the object, we want the object, we wanna get rid of the object, we feel ashamed for wanting the object, we feel entitled to have the object, all this stuff we see all the time. So meta isn't as concerned about the object but it's much more concerned with what is my attitude or my relationship about or for the object. Um, and this this is really actually very practical in our lives because I'm constantly being confronted with objects I don't like and I don't want to deal with and I feel like I shouldn't have to deal with. Uh, and there's not there's mostly like judgment, there's not a lot of kindness. So, metta Vipassana, what we do is, is initially, we recognize our sense of innate goodness, which we've done with the Sila practice, we say, you know, I really want to just be kind and benevolent towards really everything. That's my wish. That's my aspiration. Uh, and so we start by doing that towards the internal objects. Um, and so that's really what gets the kind of vipassana system going, is there's an object and there's kindness. Um, and it really destroys things like implicit bias, which is huge in our culture right now. It helps undermine our preference system. Of course, it undermines our preference for pleasure and our aversion to pain, of course. Uh, but what it does is it gives us uh, more of a pause, more of an opportunity to give the object or the experience of the person, place, or thing the benefit of the doubt. Um, the other thing, about Buddhist meditation that we could that we could say for sure. So objects arise in past, we wanna recognize the objects, we wanna have a constructive relationship to the object. But what the mind does, what perception does, is as the object arises, depending on the object, we either project qualities onto the object that aren't there, the biases and qualities and assumptions about the object. This is a great object and this is why it's a great object. And we convince ourselves it's a great object and we gotta have this great object. Projection, projection, we project. Qualities onto the object that actually aren't inherently in the object. And the mind does this all by itself. Nothing you can do about it except for be aware of it. Or if we're not projecting qualities onto the object, we're omitting. Uh, there's not any interest. There's aversion. The object's arriving, and we don't even really want to deal with it. We don't want We don't know anything about it. We don't want to know anything about it. There's, so there's qualities in the object that we probably want to know. We want to recognize, but we don't do that. So we're either projecting or we're omitting. So Vipassana helps us cut through that, helps us to see the object more accurately, um, and Metta helps us to have a more uh, dharmic relationship to that object. And so this is kind of mind training 101. This is the cultivation of, of the mind in the Buddhist perspective. <laughs> Conceptually not that hard, right, to hear what I'm saying. Sit down and do it. Good luck, right? Whole another story. So. Um, so this is why I think metta vipassana is a great practice, because we're doing both at the same time. Um, and so so we'll do some metta practice now. I'll, I'll kind of talk about that a little bit. But Many of you are familiar with metta. Um, so a couple of things about metta. Metta is not about being nice. Um, it's not about liking. Um, it's not about um, those kinds of things, which... A lot of times when we get into Buddhism or we start to, we want to become good Buddhists, we can fall in this sort of inauthentic trap of thinking we have to be nice and talk nice and this sort of social pressure of nicety, which is actually pretty inauthentic and very empty often. And it's kind of just a um, a prevailing social norm that many of us uh, have come up with. It's not bad or wrong, but it's not great. Um, kindness is... Um, of more of a friendliness. So the word metta actually literally means friend. Um, this loving kindness, I, I use it because most people know, it, but I don't like this term loving kindness. I don't think, it, I don't think it's accurate, and it, I don't think it really quite does the heavy lifting because I think it's fair to say I, I'm, I'm not expected, nor do I expect myself to love every object that arises. I don't need to love it uh, in, in that sense. I could be kind to it. I could actually be kind to something that I really don't like. I can be kind towards experiences and people that I don't like and don't love actually at all. So we have to be careful about these terms. Uh, so it's kind friendliness is probably the most accurate way, which I um, pull from John Peacock, who's kind of uh, one of the more knowledgeable, knowledgeable people about the early tradition in some of these terms. Um, so it's about being kind, it's about being friendly. Uh, and so what does that look like? Um, how do i know if that's happening it's actually pretty simple so there's two qualities that really are at the core there's two mechanisms of the mind that that are that are present in actual moments of kindness the first one is attention i'm actually paying attention to the object which that in of itself can be hard to do because a lot of times the object is interesting and then we have all these pulls of distraction we have to pay attention to the object, and we also need to be interested in the object. We need to connect and sustain and connect and sustain with interest over a period of time, and that creates the meta field, the, re, the re experience of kindness. Perfectly good example. You, uh, you go out to a coffee shop or a cafe or something to meet a friend um and your friend sits down and they look at you and you guys have this kind of embrace and you start having a conversation with a friend and it's a very enjoyable experience we love having conversations with our friends well why well because they're paying attention to you and they're interested in what you have to say and when you're in an exchange where that is happening both reciprocal giving and receiving what happens actually is the experience of self and other fall away There's no me and you, there's no conflict. There's just this kind of energetic exchange of interest and attention, and it feels so good. That's why we like it. We like that. So how can we bring that to present time experience? How can we be interested in attending to our internal life when we're confronted with objects and experiences that we would prefer not to be having? so maybe you can see why this would be really a transformative practice, because uh, we're changing our relationship to everything. Uh, and we're really cultivating this uh, practice moment to moment to moment to moment. We're kind of trying to develop more neural structures. Um, and there's a lot of neuroscience and uh, theories on neuroplasticity that totally would say that everything I'm talking talking to you about right now is actually true scientifically. So. Uh, for those of you who are doubters you can sometimes people like to lean into the science i think the science is interesting i don't really care so much uh, i i feel like this has been true in my direct experience um <clears throat> so we take the sila we've already done into this meta uh, and never, we haven't even done any vipassana yet so we'll get to that later so i think what we'll do is a practice of meta and i always emphasize and suggest that when you're doing metta practice especially at the beginning that you do it for yourself and only yourself for some time so now we're just going to lean a little bit more into vipassana so so what i'm saying is that um when we do metta vipassana uh, i'm trying so the system is a there's the acknowledgement of sila that's what we could say in a path factor since that's the right view we want to view the world uh with a kind of goodness like i see the world for what it is and i want to bring goodness and i want to bring uh, harmlessness and i want to be a, a, what i would think of as a positive agent of change now if you look at the world right now it's hard to do this but the world right now very really much needs our practice of sila and so there's a, that's the view the view right view is, is this goodness uh, this intention the next path the intention is to bring kindness to that so there's the view there's the intention then there's the uh, awareness so so we could say in a sense is that we're already holding these two frames and intentions into the practice. And so, so if we look at kind of Vipassana 101 or really kind of the most core thing that we see, and you've probably heard this many times, is when we do Vipassana insight practice on retreats, uh, deep insight practice, they're always talking about insight into what they call the three characteristics or the three marks. So Vipassana, which is kind of a dry practice, it's more of a, it doesn't have this uh, oftentimes. It's implied, but it's not explicitly said. There's not a lot of heart. There's sort of this dry monitoring that we're trying to do. Some people call, some of my Tibetan Buddhist friends call what we do, grim Vipassana. They're like, oh, you do that grim Vipassana practice where you're just trying to see impermanence and dukkha and not self, um, uh, which are challenging experiences. So. Let's just look at that a little bit. So um, insight, the first insight we see is that things are impermanent. Um, Now we have to understand that insight is non-conceptual. So everybody here on the screen, everybody here today knows that things change. So the concept of impermanence is very, very easy to understand. Now experiencing it, meaning that you're being able to observe and to watch and be able to go, wow, things are really changing. And they're always changing we're in this kind of dharma stream the water doesn't stop the stream keeps on going um and so we get insight into that and that helps us of course break our attachments because we're like everything's changing and moving there's really nothing to hold on to anyway um and our it it breaks our tendency to be aversive to push it away because it's gonna go away on its own anyway so Conceptually, impermanence is very easy to grasp. Experientially, not so easy to hearken in a way where we can see that. So that's what the practice we'll do next before we take a break. Um, and then after that, we'll talk about dukkha, which is, a, oh, man, I'm sure you all know about dukkha. Um, and what else? Uh, grossly misunderstood concept that is its association with the first noble truth and it's a very uh i would say inaccurate and unhelpful translation as suffering dukkha is suffering Uh, that's not really uh if you have that view i would like to break that from your mind today because uh, dukkha translated as suffering creates a whole range of issues Uh, dukkha is actually a term best left untranslated um but I, i like to think about it as imperfect Because a lot of us are perfectionists. Nothing's perfect. Uh, Things are inherently unsatisfactory, um, which is another way it's translated. Um, Simply put, dukkha is the acknowledgement and the reality that life is hard. And that's not going to change. What we want to do is change our relationship to the fact that life is hard. and This is why the metta part of it is so important so important i believe um so um we'll do a, a vipassana practice now a little bit of a shorter one for maybe about 15 minutes or so and then we'll we'll take about a seven or eight minute break we'll come back and have some questions about that and then we'll just kind of move on um but uh this is a, what i want to do uh here now so um which is a little bit controversial. People have argued at me for doing this practice, but I find it to be really useful. So when we do initial Vipassana um, and we want to get insight into the characteristic or the reality of change, of impermanence, um, interestingly enough, the probably most accurate translation of uh, Nietzsche is not absolute Nothing is absolute, nothing is certain, nothing is fixed. Uh, and of course, what do we want more than anything is certainty and absolution. Uh, Nietzsche is understanding that, that, that everything is in process. And it, the process, there's no pause button. There's no. The factory of impermanence never shuts down. Impermanence is hard at work in every single moment, all of the time. And can we like get on board with that? So here, this initial Vipassana practice is bringing the metta, the kindness. uh, So the object, actually, of practice is going to be change. And so to be with present-time experience is, in fact, to be with change. That's what we're with, moment-to-moment experience. That's why I don't like this word, moment. I I very rarely will you ever catch me say present moment awareness. I don't actually believe that there's such a thing called the present moment. Uh, There's present movement, um, but there's no moment that we can like pin down. And I can tell you, I spent decades on retreats trying to nail the present moment to the floor so I could be with it. And it just keeps on going. So, um, Part of that is to acknowledge that as English speaking people and English thinking minds, I'm sure much of you have, um, we're very noun focused. We're very person, place, thing, absolution, concrete ideas, noun, person, place, or thing. There's a noun, it's fixed, it's like that. That's kind of how the whole English lexicon is built much more around that. Not the Buddha, not Pali, Pali language is a very verb-based language, which a verb, as you know, is a state of being. Um, And so we want to kind of maybe think about that for a minute, that uh, the present moment is not a noun; It's not a place. It's not a thing. It's an experience that's in transitory uh, movement all the time, which is why it's so damn hard to pay attention to it. Because as soon as you catch it, you're like, oh, it's like this, and it's gone. No, it's like that, and it's gone. It's hard to keep up. That's why we got to have some balance.